0: glad you're here. And last week, we started something called the need for deeds. The need for deeds, understanding the role of good works in your life. And we started off with Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, which says this, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And I tried to, to talk a little bit last week Uh, about the motivation for our good works. Last week I said the wrong motivation for our good works is that we might somehow have our acceptance with God, that we might either acquire God's love for us, acquire God's acceptance for us, or maintain God's acceptance for us. Both of those are wrong motivations for good deeds. The good stuff that you do, and you're supposed to do good stuff, We've just seen in Ephesians this morning that the first three chapters of Ephesians are doctrinally rich, but that doctrine is supposed to make a difference in your life even down to the family unit. So the Bible is full of commands, imperatives, whatever you want to call it, things that you're supposed to do, but the motivation... For our doing those good works, those good deeds, the things that we're supposed to do is not to get God's favor or to keep God's favor. And most of us are probably on the same page with getting God's favor. We understand that we get God's favor through, through grace, through faith, and what Jesus has done for us. But many of us as believers live our Christian lives as, as if now that God has given us grace, we must maintain God's favor by the good stuff that we do. And Romans chapter 1 and verse 17 that says the righteousness that we have is by faith from first to last. In other words, you're standing with God as much as when you are converted to this very moment until you are on your deathbed is all a matter of grace. It's all dependent on what Jesus Christ has done for you. So motive is important. The motive behind our good works is extremely important. And I tried to give you this statement to try to explain exactly how the Bible talks about good works. Good works are a necessary consequence, not the qualifying condition of our standing with God. They're a necessary consequence not the qualifying condition. A qualifying condition is something that says, if these standards, these requirements are met, I will accept you. You will qualify for my favor, my acceptance, my love. That's not the gospel, is it? The gospel doesn't give out a list of things that must be right with you so that God will accept you. The Bible says there is nothing in the world that you can do to possibly gain my favor because you are sinful, and so I will do for you what you are incapable of doing for yourself. And I will do that on the basis of Jesus' work on the cross. So good works are not a qualifying condition of our acceptance with God. But they are a necessary consequence. They are a necessary consequence. So we're trying to avoid the two ditches. Remember last week we talked about the two ditches? One of them is legalism, which says, I must obey so that God will accept me. The other ditch that we can fall into is that of license. I need not obey because God has accepted me. Both of those, if you're following both of the, either of those, you're off the path. You're off the road. And so our, today I want to spend more time talking about the fact that our good works are a necessary consequence. But I just want to give you one quote that I wish I could have included last week because it makes the point for us that we have an inherent within us uh, aversion to grace, Okay, grace is unnatural. The message of the cross is scandalous. The reason the story of the prodigal son patch, packs such a punch is because the guy who screws up his whole life and everybody else's life gets forgiven without really having to work it, work it out. He doesn't work it off. And we're familiar with the story of the prodigal son, and so sometimes we miss that, but, but when, you, when you read that with fresh eyes and you see, okay, the, person, he, he, the son comes back, repents after living this terrible lifestyle, and he's just back in. Really? That's all there is to it? He doesn't have to pay? We have an aversion to grace because we don't operate often with grace. But Martin Lloyd-Jones... Pastor from Westminster Chapel in London from 1939 to 1968 said this There is no better test of whether a man is preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this. That some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this that because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. That is a very good test of gospel preaching. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to that misunderstanding, then it is not the gospel. The gospel is a message of acceptance with God solely on the basis of what Christ has done alone. And friends, we have to get that. You have to get that. You have to understand that. But we get worried, don't we? We get worried that if we preach a message like that, we're taking away every incentive for doing good. If my incentive for doing good, is, it's got to somehow be tied to God's acceptance for me because if you go around and tell people something crazy, like God has just accepted you, they're not going to do good stuff anymore because we understand that the goal of the gospel impacting our hearts is transformation. The point of our salvation isn't just to save us from hell the point is to make us from Je- make us like Jesus that's what God is doing that's what God is in the process of doing he's conforming us to the image of his son and so we get worried if i preach the gospel like that people won't be conformed to the image of Christ's son they won't do the stuff that they're supposed to do because there's no reason to but the point that i'm trying to make to you this morning is that good works are a necessary consequence for our acceptance with God. A consequence is something that follows something else. And so, good works, I said last week, are the fruit, not the root, of our acceptance with God. Good works are the fruit, not the root, of our acceptance with God. There's no such thing as fruit just kind of hanging out here in space. If there's fruit on a tree... It's there because something else exists. There are roots there. There's a system there that's that's supplying nourishment to the tree that makes it able to bear fruit. And that's the point that I'm trying to make. Fruit is a consequence of a root. Something that has taken place in our hearts. And it is a necessary consequence, I say. A necessary consequence, meaning that bearing fruit... Doing good, the need for deeds, is not the, the domain of super-Christians. It's not for the people that are really committed. The average ones of us are just kind of plugging along, and we can go through, the, go through our lives seemingly bearing no fruit at all. That's not, that's not it. We're going to see that. Bearing fruit, doing good, good deeds, is a necessary consequence of something that has taken place inside of us. So I want us to see, first of all, that we do good works because God has already accepted us. That word that's italicized on the screen, because, is crucial. We do good works because God has already accepted us. That's another way of saying that doing good is a consequence of, not a condition for God's acceptance for us. And I want us to see this in terms of three realities and our responses to those realities. We're talking about the fact that we do good works because God has already accepted us. And I want us to see three realities this morning that inform point number one, that we do good works because God has accepted us. Reality number one, God has fundamentally changed us. It's, it's interesting to me that the Bible doesn't see preaching the gospel that I've been outlining as a hindrance to living a holy life. The gospel doesn't have that concern that we all, all often have. If I preach the gospel, people, people won't do good. The gospel doesn't have that concern. And we're going to go to Romans chapter 6 to look at this in this passage. If you've got a Bible with you, go to Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry because I'm going to be reading it out loud. But we're going to go to Romans chapter 6 And I'm going to go back to to chapter 5 and just reiterate a couple of things for you. First of all, what undergirds Romans chapter 6 is the truths that are summarized in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. We stand in a sure position of grace. And then at the end of the chapter, it says, But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The foundation of Romans chapter 6 is Romans chapter 5. The fact that we have been justified, the fact that we have this perfect standing with God because of the work that Christ has done, done on our behalf. And, and no matter what kind of pile of sin your life represents, there is no way that can outspend the currency of grace. There is more grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin put together or all of the sin that could be done in the universe. So he then says in chapter 6 and verse 1, "'What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means.'" We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So the question that Paul is now turning his attention to answer is, if grace is so monolithic, if it is so abundant, why obey? Why do good deeds? Why worry about sin? Why not take approaches such as this one? God will forgive That is his business. Or, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. That's a cynical approach to grace. That that the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 says, God forbid, may it never be that we would take an approach to grace But the Bible gives us an answer that we might not expect. It says, We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? What what the Bible is going to do here is going to say, It would be foolish, impossible, crazy preposterous, bizarre. Fill in whatever word that you want to use to to describe how crazy it would be for people who have been changed on the inside to not change on the outside. And that's why I've said God has fundamentally changed you. And what this passage of Scripture does is it appeals to the fact that we have been united with Christ. I want you to see as we read through this how often those words are used. Let's start in verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin because if anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if, we ha- now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, we don't have a lot of time to spend walking through this passage, but over and over and over again, it says that you have been united with Christ. Over and over again. You've been united with Christ's death. You've been united with Christ's resurrection. This is the biblical doctrine of union with Christ. Union with Christ, Wayne Grudem has said, is a phrase used to summarize several different relationships between believers and Christ through which Christians receive every benefit of salvation. So it's unexpected, but here's what Paul is doing in Romans. He's saying when you are converted, when your heart is changed, when you come to Christ and you receive the gift of salvation by faith, you are spiritually united with a historical event that happened thousands of years ago. And that, that being united with that spiritual event that happened thousands of years ago has ongoing effects in your present day life. In other words, Christianity isn't just an esoteric uh, religion that's, that's something of, of thoughts and words and ideals. It's not, just, it's not just stuff to be believed. It's stuff that affects your experience. So what Paul is saying here, he's saying you have been fundamentally changed. Remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you have to be born again. In other words, you're changed into a completely different person. You have died to sin. Sin, though it's still carries its temptations, is no longer a ruling principle in your life. You're no longer a slave to it anymore. Not only have you died to sin, not only has Christ's death to sin become your death, but you are now raised to walk in newness of life. So you've been, you're, the fact that you've been united with Christ means that you've died with him and been raised and you live in a completely different way under completely new principles. In other words, Christianity isn't just about ideas. It's about experience. And Paul says it would be preposterous for you to pursue sin anymore because you've been changed. You're not the same. So a caterpillar that has become a butterfly doesn't say, I'm a butterfly now. But I didn't really do anything to become a butterfly. It just kind of happened. I took this long nap and, whoa, I got wings now. <laughs> but why should I do butterfly stuff? Okay? It doesn't say that. It flies across an open field because it can. Its nature has fundamentally been altered. It isn't a caterpillar anymore. It isn't, it, isn't, uh, it isn't stuck on the ground anymore. Metamorphosis has happened. It can fly up to new heights because it has new desires and new ability. It can see the top of the tree and it can get there. And it's the same thing with us. Once we find our hearts change, we don't sit around thinking, well, why should I do anything since I didn't, I didn't pay for it anyway? A person who has that kind of attitude is a person who has never really truly been changed. Because when you meet Jesus and when you you are united with Christ, you are united both with his death and with his resurrection, and moral transformation has occurred in a remarkable, profound way that affects your experience today. So, our response should be this do not let sin rule. Don't let sin rule. Because you you have the ability to not let sin rule. Before you were a slave to sin, you were a slave to the principles of sin. And sin may still tempt you now. You're not dead to the effects of sin, but you're dead to sin as a ruling principle. And so now with the new wings that you have, with the new moral ability that you have, with the new desires that you have, don't let sin rule. It says in verse 11, count yourselves Because God has shown us grace and given us new desires and given us new abilities and has fundamentally changed our hearts, not to earn God's favor, but because we have it, we can do good. So it's not the answer that we, that we first think of when we think, what's going to be my motivation But the answer that Paul gives in Romans chapter 6 is, you have been fundamentally changed. You've been altered. Metamorphosis has happened. Now, pursue that new identity that you've been given in Christ because you've been united with him. Reality number two, God unequivocally owns us. The next question that Paul is going to examine in Romans chapter 6 and verse 15 pertains to this. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not? Under the law, but under grace? By no means. So the question could then be asked, because I'm not under the Old Testament law, because I'm under grace, does that mean that I am no longer under any sort of moral obligation at all? Because God has shown me grace, does that mean that that if, if God had things that he wanted me to do, if if the Bible used a word like obey, is that at odds with grace? Is is it... Is it All grace or obedience, are those things mutually exclusive? That's the question, I think, that's being asked here. And again, we mentioned him last week, but Jonathan Edwards is helpful to us here because he says this, which way, in other words, how is it inconsistent with the freeness of God's grace that holy practice should be a sign of God's grace? It is our works being the price of God's favor and not there being the sign of it that is the thing which is inconsistent with the freeness of that favor. If your good deeds are the price of God's favor, then that's inconsistent with grace. But if your good deeds are a sign, a consequence, something that follows from the grace that's been shown to you, then that is not inconsistent with grace in any way. And so we may not continue in sin, even though we are under the law, and not uh, we are not under the law, but under grace. And so let me read a couple verses to you, starting with verse 16 in Romans chapter 6. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So the point that the Bible is making here for us is that the alternative is not obedience to God or freedom. And that's sometimes the way the world thinks. The world thinks, I don't, want to, I don't want to become a Christian because I see the moral obligations that are placed on Christians. I want to be free, right? I don't want to have to obey stuff. I don't want to have to do stuff. I, God's going to require something of me. I would like to be free. And the Bible tells us that is an illusion. You are either, according to this passage, a slave of Satan and sin which leads to death, or you are a slave of God and righteousness, which leads to eternal life. There's no middle ground. There's no freedom from law, total freedom as an individual. You are either serving on your way to death or you are serving on your way to life. And the Bible says that we must have, because we have been changed, We also need to recognize that we have been unequivocally owned by God. We are his slaves. And verse 17 tells us that this is not a bad thing. It sounds oppressive, slave terminology. He says in verse 17, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. In other words, you can be a servant of God. You can do the deeds that God has prepared in advance for you to do. You can do that with a thankful heart. And you can do it wholeheartedly. Why? Why? because you're on the path of righteousness that is ultimately going to lead to life. The path of freedom that the world thinks exists is really the path of slavery leading to death, and it does not promise the joy. It does not provide the joy that it promises. And so we're to to offer ourselves as slaves to God, responding to the grace of God, because we don't respond to God as our judge, we respond to Him as our loving Father. You can respond to God in obedience with a thankful heart because God has already accepted you. And if you're responding to God for any other reason, if you're responding to God to earn his favor, then you are constantly going to let both him and yourself down. You are going to be on the treadmill of trying to provide your own righteousness. And Galatians has told us that you cannot get righteousness by obeying law. It can't be done. Let Jesus be your righteousness and find grace. That's what we need. We need to find grace. And rather than, rather than grace give, leading us to license, the person who has found grace has found change because God has regenerated that person's heart, that God has given that person new birth, that God has given that person new desires, and God has given new abilities that match those desires. And so now freely offer yourself to God as his slave, doing the things which lead to righteousness. So the response that we're supposed to have is give yourself. Stop it. Why isn't my thing working here? You had to have some sort of glitches. I actually talked to my technology as if, it, as if it could hear me. Our response is this. Give yourself to the pursuit of righteousness. He says uh, in uh, verse 19, uh, towards the middle, Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, which leads to holiness. Friends, you, are, you and I are under new ownership. When a business is taken over, say a restaurant, somebody purchases a restaurant from somebody else, they often put a sign in the, in the window that says, under new ownership. Why do they do that? Because they want to make a break to the past and differentiate themselves from the past and say, this is what it's going to be going forward. And friends, you are not your own. I am not my own. We were bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. And so we have a responsibility to live as if we were under new ownership, we have a responsibility to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the pursuit of righteousness, wholeheartedly pursuing righteousness. Reality number three, God powerfully indwells us. We do good works because God has already accepted us. Number one, God has fundamentally changed us. God unequivocally owns us. And reality number three, God powerfully indwells us. Last week, we talked from the book of Galatians. And Galatians is all about the fact, as a remi- as, by way of reminder, that it is inconsistent with the gospel to add anything to it. And what was going on in Galatians was there were people coming in, false teachers were saying, belief in Jesus is fine and good. Believe in Jesus, that's great, but you've also got to add this to it you've got to add observance of the Old Testament law to that. In other words, what they were saying is believing in Jesus is fine and good, but it doesn't provide the moral incentive to live a holy life. You're not going to be the kind of person Jesus wants you to be unless you add law-keeping to it. So the gospel is about believing in Jesus and the people who have really believed the gospel, the people who really know where it's at are the people who are following the Old Testament law. And, And Paul is vociferous in his, op- in his opposition against that kind of teaching. He says, If righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. You're not depending on the law for your righteousness. You depend on Christ for your righteousness. But here's what they say. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Paul says, absolutely not. In other words, what they're asking here is, you who are preaching this gospel of free, free grace in Christ, well, look at the fact that there's sin in the lives of some of, your, of the people who have believed that message. Does the presence of sin in their lives invalidate the fact, the, invalidate the gospel that you're preaching? And Paul's answer to that is absolutely not in any way because in Galatians 4 9, he says, but now that you know God or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Okay, this is what I said before. If, if, a, if righteousness could be gained through keeping the law, then Christ died for nothing and so when people are, were turning back to the law or turning back to something else to seek their justification or to maintain their acceptance with God, Paul says, do you wish to be enslaved by it? Those things didn't work. They didn't provide for you the righteousness that you thought you were going to receive from it because the standard of righteousness is so much higher than you ever could have conceived of. So... Now that you have been known by God, now that you have been reached out to in sovereign grace, now that you have been changed, I fear, sorry, I fear, he says later on in that verse, that I have somehow wasted my efforts on you. And so Paul affirms, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. But we're back to our objection again now. If I'm free in Christ, what is my motivation to serve? What is my motivation to do good deeds? Paul begins his answer with this, and you're going to see notes and things that we've already mentioned as we read this passage together. But he says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command love your neighbor as yourself my technology is playing with me again love your neighbor as yourself so it seems like we have an oxymoron here you've been free don't let anybody take your freedom in Christ away don't let it happen for a second oh but use don't use your freedom to indulge sinful desires rather use the freedom that you have in Christ to serve, Use the freedom that you have in Christ to serve. Well, how in the world could we do that? Is anyone here a servant by nature? I'm not seeing any hands raised here. Because in and of ourselves, we are naturally selfish people who are constantly seeking our own good and our own welfare to the exclusion of others. And it may not show up in horrible ways, dictator of a country ways, but we're all dictators of our own lives in some ways, and it shows up in the way that we treat our family and our friends and the people around us. It shows up that it's about us. How are you going to fight something like that? How, how could anyone fulfill a law? I mean, the, the entire law that was given in the Old Testament to the people of God could be summed up with love your neighbor as yourself, that's, that's far more comprehensive than a list of rules, isn't it? A, re- a list of rules can only cover certain situations. But this heading that says just love everyone as much as you love yourself, that's way harder to keep than a list of rules because you will never be able to write enough rules to cover the situations that you're going to encounter for loving your neighbor as yourself. How are you going to do that? Galatians says, So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's reality number three that we were talking about. God powerfully you. Here's the trump card that Paul has to his detractors who say, if you don't add the law, people aren't going to do what they're supposed to do. And Paul says, I've got something better than an external set of laws. How about God living inside of you? Is that enough? Is that powerful enough for you? Friends, we have been delivered from the penalty of sin, We are being delivered from the presence of sin in our lives and we have the Holy Spirit powerfully working within us to steer us in the proper direction. You actually have God within you compelling you forward down the right path. And so the rest of Galatians is talking about the fact that we are supposed to, in chapter 5 and verse 16, walk in the Spirit. Or chapter 5 and verse 18, we're supposed to be led by the Spirit. Or verse 25 says we're to live by the Spirit. Or keep in step with the Spirit. Or 6.8 says that we are to sow, to please the Spirit. In other words, you've got the Holy Spirit giving you new desires, giving you these new abilities. What are you supposed to do as a Christian now? Follow it. The Spirit is setting a trajectory for our lives. Don't step outside of the trajectory. Follow the trajectory. Sow to the Spirit. Sow things in your heart and your life through the Word and through Christian relationships and all the kinds of things. Sow the things that are going to make you grow. People wonder sometimes, why am I not growing? It's because they're sowing to the flesh. Why am I having trouble with being so tempted by sin? It's because we're sowing to the flesh. We're feeding those desires. The Bible says you're powerfully indwelt by God himself such that you can now be given a command like love your neighbor as yourself and actually start to pursue it because you've got this power working within you. So follow it, sow to it, believe it, keep in step with it. Our response is truly to follow the Spirit. Now we have just a few minutes left, so I'll try to wrap this up quickly. But we do good works, first of all, because God has already accepted us. Now, we see, secondly, we must do good works. We must do good works because God has already accepted us. We must do good works because God has already accepted us. They are a a necessary consequence of God's acceptance. I've said they're, they're not optional. They're not for the realm of the super committed. All believers are to do good works. All the believers are to follow that internal compelling of the Spirit. All believers are supposed to live out of their new identity in Christ. All believers are supposed to recognize that they are no longer under the ruling principle of sin, that, that sin and, and death is, no longer has mastery over them, and they are now slaves to God and righteousness and life, and they can pursue those things with joy. That is supposed to be the experience of all believers— We may not experience to the same degree. Some of us are going to grow slower than others. Some of us, the growth is going to be two steps forward and a step back. Some of us, the growth is going to be imperceptible at times or even for years. But Christians necessarily grow. Christians necessarily change. They can't help but change because they've got something inside of them driving it. And so, friends, if we aren't doing good, if our lives are not characterized by fruit, and I'm not talking about a whole orchard of fruit, but if there's no fruit in our lives, we're not supposed to say, I better do better at working fruit. We better start asking ourselves, I wonder if real heart change has happened. Because when heart change happens, fruit appears. It's something that we must do. And I'm going to turn you over to James 2 in these last moments. And I'm going to read several verses here. My brothers, I'm sorry. What good is it, my brothers? James chapter 2 and verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? So... James is drawing a connection, a straight line from faith to works and showing us that works are the evidence of saving faith. Just as it would be it would be mean-spirited if someone were to come to us and need something and we were to say, wish you well, brother, be warmed and filled and go on our way without doing anything at all, we would be hypocrites, wouldn't we? And a life that's not characterized by good deeds is a hypocritical life. That's the point that James is making. Faith is evidenced by deeds. Verse uh, 18. But someone will say, "'You have faith, I have deeds. "'Show me your faith without deeds, "'and I will show you my faith by what I do. "'You believe that there is one God? Good.'" Even the demons believe that and shudder. So a person is saying, isn't, isn't, is saying, hey, one of us has works, one of us has deeds. It's all good, right? But, but if you have works without faith, the Bible tells us that all your righteousness is like rubbish, garbage, filthy rags. It can accomplish nothing. So you could do good works without faith your whole life and have it amount to nothing. But if you've got faith without works... Then it's a demonstration that your faith is fake. It's cubic zirconium faith. It's not the real item because faith is not just a matter of thoughts, faith is not just a, manner, a matter of words, faith is a matter of deeds. And in verses. 20 verse 20 it says you foolish man do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless was not our ancestor abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son isaac on the altar you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did now it's going to sound in just a moment when i read the bible here that i'm going to completely contradict everything i've just said okay but hold on and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Great. I just shot my whole two weeks in the foot with that verse. A person is justified not, not just by faith but by what he does. There's a couple things that you've got to consider here that are going on in James First of all, when the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, that declaration was made in Genesis chapter 15, years before Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham is willing to offer up Isaac, his son, to God. Abraham's willingness to offer up his son to God was a sign of a faith and acceptance by God that had already taken place in his life years prior. So the Bible is careful in the language that it uses. It does not ground Abraham's acceptance with God in his faith. It says that his works completed his faith. They were the evidence of his faith. If Abraham had said, God, thank you for that command, but no. I'm not doing that. It would have been an evidence that his faith was not real. Secondly, the way that the word justify is being used here, Paul and James use the word justify in different ways. We don't have time to talk about it, but in Romans, justification is legal. It's declaring something to be true about you. You are not righteous, but when you come to Christ in faith, he accepts you, he gives you his, his righteousness, and you have the legal standing before God of perfect righteousness. But we always also use justify in a different way. If you spend money at your job... And you're called upon to justify your explanation of those expenses. Your boss is not asking you to make a legal declaration about your expenses that you, that you disbursed. He's asking you to provide the reason why you spent the money the way you did. Justify yourself. What is your justification? Well, this is why I did it. This is the expression of why I did it. This is, I this is, uh, can't think of any more words, but you've got demonstrate. Demonstration of of what I have done. And that's the way James is using this. So so James and Paul are answering two completely different questions. Paul in Romans is asking the question, does faith or works justify? And he's making the point that it's only faith that justifies, not works. James is asking a different question. James is asking what kind of faith justifies. It's not the faith of intellectual assent. It's not the faith of mere belief. It's a faith that finds outward expression in the production of fruit. And so, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6 says this, The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So let me thank you for your patience, but I, I really am almost done. Let me read to you from John 15. Okay, I hope this helps, helps you. Understand the role of good works in the Christian life. They have to happen, but they're not the basis for God's acceptance of us. And I want to leave you with some words from Jesus in John 15. I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. The way you and I are going to bear fruit is by being connected to Jesus, remaining in the vine, living out of the new identity that, he's got, that he has given to us and friends. If you recognize the power that is available to you through Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit, you realize that you can pursue all those good deeds that God has prepared in advance for you to do. And you can do it freely because God has already accepted you wholly apart from those things. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this would be helpful um, in the lives of the people of our church, our church family, I thank you for the way it's been helpful in my life and I just pray that you would help us to go out there and pursue righteousness with reckless abandon because we realize that at the end of the day our righteousness is found in you, your work on our behalf, not our works. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.